You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Konnichiwa, bitches. What's good, everybody? Welcome to Abakabu Cafe, the one, the only English-language podcast devoted solely to Kimagure Orange Road. I appreciate everybody joining us today. Thank you for tuning into this podcast, because today we're going to end the summer out with a very special episode. We're going to be talking all about OVA number two that is entitled Hawaiian Suspense. This OVA was originally released on April the 1st, 1989. As you guys all know, this is an OVA, so it wasn't broadcast on television. This OVA was directed by Morikawa Shigeru, who did have a hand in several of the television episodes that we've covered so far, including episode seven, very important episode, the Spark Colored Kiss episode. That's the episode that we found out what a lightweight Kasuga is. Morikawa also directed episode 11, Don't Ring the Wedding Bell, and episode 16, Madoka Saw UFO. That's the UFO episode. This OVA was written by Ohashi Yukiyoshi. Ohashi also wrote episode 13, which was Shikaru's super transformation episode. This was the episode where she wanted to be more mature by robbing Ayukawa's closet of every one of her Madonna outfits from the 80s. Ohashi also wrote episode 16, which was the UFO episode again. So uh, Ohashi and um, Morikawa have worked together previously uh, on, on that episode. This OVA is a great way to end the summer, in my opinion. It's hard to tell exactly when in the year this is occurring, but, but we are shown some establishing shots of Kasuga's residence at the beginning and since that's in Japan and it's looking very lush and grown over, we know it's either late spring or summertime or very early fall. We know that this is not occurring in the in the wintertime for sure or late fall. The episode begins with someone other than Kasuga doing the opening voiceover, which is a little bit weird for this series. Kasuga is our narrator throughout the entirety of the series, but it begins with Ayukawa's 
opening voiceover. Now, she's writing from Hawaii. We're shown these establishing shots, as I mentioned, of Kosuga's residence, the, the stairs, the swing set, the, uh, the rooftop of the Green Castle apartment building where the Kosuga family lives. We even see inside of Kosuga's room, and we know it's Kosuga's room because we see the red straw hat leaning up against a chair. So we recognize this as Kosuga's room. I always think of this OVA as well as OVA 1 as being kind of lost episodes that were produced for the television series but never found their way to broadcast for one reason or another. And there's a lot of reasons why this OVA seems more like a television episode. The animation quality does seem like it's a step up from the TV uh, episodes if you compare this to the animation from episode Uh, 20 for instance this is a step up for sure in terms of the animation quality there's it's a little bit more crisp but not as crisp as the ovas that we're going to see Um, the ovas that i've already covered three and four have a, a really lush kind of saturated vibrance to the colors and a crispness that we don't see here so it's not quite on the level artistically of ovas three four uh five six seven eight uh, but it's it's not quite on the level of the television animation either. It does seem like it's stepped up a little bit. So there's definitely a different visual style. The, the, the graphic representation of still images, still frames, and um, backgrounds seems a lot more like a, a pencil sketch versus a watercolor. The backgrounds usually have kind of the, wa- in the television series, usually have this sort of watercolor appearance to them. And this is a little bit more uh, sketchy in nature. It's nice. You get a little bit more of that sort of like painterly, you know, sketchy quality of of the lines when when we see those still images, those still frames of the gang doing stuff in Hawaii. So the the animation is a step up from the television series, but but not as much as the OVAs. So the quality is somewhere in between in terms of like the just the visual content. And then we have a consistent episode title screen. We have those the the black background with the orange ripples. It looks like uh, drops in water, but they're they're like a bright orange ripple, and it's identical to what we see in the television series. Not to mention, uh, actress in the mirror is the opening of the the third part of the television series. It's also the opening used here for this OVA, and uh, dance in the memories is the ending song for the third part of the television series. It's used as the ending song here. So this is very congruent stylistically with the opening, the closes. We've got an eye catch here. We've got the third eye catch that we see. That Jingoro eye catch is used here. An eye catch is completely unnecessary outside of television. The eye catch exists to communicate to people that the television program is back. You don't have to look away from the television anymore. If you're in the kitchen getting a, a fresh beverage or something like that, you hear that eye catch, that music means that it's back on. And with an OVA, this is a direct-to-video release. It's not being broadcast with commercials. There's zero purpose in having an eye catch in something that was produced specifically for the OVA medium. So the fact that the eye catch is here is enough for me to conclude that OVA number two, Hawaiian Suspense, is indeed a sort of a lost episode. It was produced for television, and when it didn't make the cut, it didn't make it into the final run, and there may be reasons for that. I'll talk about it at the end of this episode, but it didn't make it into the final run, but they still have this produced episode. Why not release it as an OVA to... uh, you know, give it to the fans, put it out there for the fans. This is definitely a fun uh, episode to watch, and I'm, I'm glad we got it. But but also because, um, you know, people are going to buy it. There's there's money to be made. So 
Um, you know, best believe Teradic Kenji is clocking. And Summer Mirage is used here in an identical way to its use in episode 19. It's uh, this establishing music that's played over uh, scenes of the gang in Hawaii. Um, it provides more cohesion with the original TV series. Like many episodes of Orange Road, we begin in Media Res, which is uh, the gang's second day in Hawaii. We see Ayukua and Casca, and they are seeming very anxious about something. There's some foreboding element hanging over them. Before we cut to their first day in Hawaii, where Shikaru is with them. It's the three of them shown in that kind of MTV montage, music video style montage uh, style of the times. Perfect for an 80s television program such as this. And we see the main trio kind of enjoying all of the fun that Hawaii has to offer as we're hearing Summer Mirage there in the background. Now, Summer Mirage fades away, and then we get more into the meat of the plot. We're going to find out now why Ayukawa and Kasuga seemed so anxious. What was hanging over them in their uh, very first scene there as the, the second day in Hawaii was beginning? And we get a very, very effective use of montage here as the, as the conflict is starting to ramp up. We're going to get our inciting incident very soon, and the filmmakers are building tension perfectly here. Shikata goes back to the hotel to collect her wallet and Kasuga's wallet as well. They'd left them in the hotel room. So Shikaru left Kasuga and Ayukua on the beach to run and get the wallet. Seems like a pretty normal thing. I'm sure the hotel was was uh, just off the beach, so it's not a long journey for her at all. She's just thinking, I'm going to run across the street to the hotel, take the elevator up, I'll grab the waltz, I'll be back in five minutes. But we, we follow Shikaru, as the viewer, we follow Shikaru through that really kind of mundane task of going back to the hotel room to find something that you've forgotten. I mean, if you've ever traveled and stayed in a hotel, chances are this has happened to you. So we see Shikaru as she's waiting for the elevator. We cut away to a man with a newspaper and sunglasses. We can see uh, just the forehead of this guy and maybe the top of his sunglasses. We can see that he's kind of looking over that newspaper. And then we cut back to Shikaru and it's a much tighter shot of her face. The camera is much, much closer in on Shikaru. We cut back to the man with the newspaper and sunglasses and it's moved in tighter on him too. The camera is approaching both of these characters as we cut back and forth. And we intercut to see what each one is doing. It adds significance to both of these shots. When we cut back to Hikaru again, she looks at the camera, which tells us she's looking over at the man. Again, this is extremely effective use of montage here. We cut back to the man who, as Hikaru has looked at him, he brings the newspaper up a bit to cover up his eyes. He doesn't want her to know that he was looking over that newspaper. He wasn't really reading the newspaper. He's keeping his eye on her. There's no dialogue to tell us this. Nothing is spelled out. There's no sign. There's no subtitle that says this guy is looking at this girl. This girl realizes it, and she's looking over her shoulder nervously. All of that is communicated just with the effective use of this montage, this back and forth cutting, and the camera becoming tighter and closer to the characters on each cut. It's very, very effective. Now, the, the filmmakers have clearly told us this guy is watching Shikaru and that Shikaru could feel his eyes on her. The elevator then 
empties its occupants. All of the people get out of the elevator. And they walk between the camera and Shikaru, obscuring her for a moment. So as the viewer, all we see are people passing by in front of us. When they've cleared, we cut back to the man with the newspaper where he was sitting, only to see that he's gone. That bench is now empty. And Shikaru notices that too. She gets in the elevator and takes it up to her floor. And as she steps off the elevator to go to her room, the camera pans very slightly to the left from behind a corner. It simulates the viewpoint of someone discreetly watching Shikaru. So that shot also with that little pan tells us there's someone following her. There's someone watching her. Shots alternate between Shikaru walking away from the camera as it follows her. So as she's walking down the hallway, the camera follows her to keep her at the same spot in the frame. And because the camera follows Shikaru as she walks and she never gets further deeper into the shot, it simulates the idea of someone following her. Someone's behind her. Someone's watching and following silently. She's not looking back yet. Shots alternate between that and tight shots of Shikaru's face from a profile. And every time we cut back to Shikaru, that tells us that her paranoid feeling that she's being watched or followed is mounting. It's building. So it's very Hitchcockian in their buildup of suspension tension. You guys can go back and watch any Hitchcock film, even stuff as old as the, the 30s, like the, the 39 Steps and The Lady Vanishes. Go back and watch something like that. Shadow of a Doubt, go back and watch some old Hitchcock. Note how Hitchcock would use very similar film techniques to build tension, to ramp it up, the suspense. And another notable element of this is the mise-en-scene. So despite being at what appears to be a pretty well-appointed hotel, they're there for uh, Ayukawa's parents' uh, concert. So they're not staying at like a cheapo uh, Motel 8 or something. This is a nice hotel. And despite being Orange Road, I mean, watch any other Orange Road episode, how vibrant are the colors? How saturated are they? How bright is every scene? But here, here we see that the colors are dull. They're not vibrant at all. That whole lobby appears gray and brown and, and dark. It shadows all around the elevator and in the lobby space behind Shikaru. So the mise-en-scene also helps create the feeling of suspenseful foreboding. So they chose the colors on purpose as well as the montage or editing that they use to build this sequence. So very, very classical elements to build the suspense as we mount towards our inciting incident. And I do believe that they owe a debt to some of the filmmakers of past decades, of previous decades, such as Hitchcock. I think he's very, very well known for this type of suspense and tension and this kind of buildup in a very classical sense. And yet, this is a, a really kind of an odd Orange Road episode in that there's a very real threat of violence in this episode. That's a little out of the ordinary for Orange Road, and I'll, I'll talk about it again at the end of this podcast. So the filmmakers actually dissipate some of that tension that they've built up by showing us that no one was there when Shikaru turns, when her, when her paranoia finally reaches its peak and she's had enough and she turns and she's, why are you following me? There's nobody there. And it allows us a moment to think that maybe Shikaru was wrong. I mean, maybe this tension was built up for nothing. It also allows us to enjoy the levity of the Ayuko Akasuka interaction that occurs in the following scene where Ayuko asks Kasuga to put some uh, tanning oil on her back. And of course, this is too much for him, right? I mean, he doesn't touch Ayukawa like this. 
And yet we have this comedic scene of him. You know, she's suspecting that he's thinking something dirty. He probably is. He's touching her in a way that he doesn't usually. And so she's seeming very open and receptive to him by asking him to put the stuff on her back. And she even unties the little knot in her bikini so that he can, he doesn't, that's not the bikini straps, not in his way. And he's just, he's about to stroke out before they notice that, that Shikaru is gone. And so that's a moment of levity. And, and so that helps to balance the tension a little bit too. They dissipate the tension. They introduce a little bit of levity. Then we go back to Shikaru being kidnapped for real, which is, again, it's a little bit out of the ordinary and it's a little bit of a, a different kind of story for an Orange Road episode. That might be a reason why this was never broadcast with the television series. This might've just been a little bit too real. Like the violence might've been a little bit too visceral. Now, Ishikaru gets kidnapped because she's duped by a letter. As if the hotel's gonna send some 300 pound giant. It's like Andre the Giant. Like, I'm here to deliver your letter. You know what I mean? Like, we've got a letter for you. Anybody want a peanut? I mean, it's like you send this humongous guy to deliver a letter and his, his neck is the size of my thigh. And she's just thinking like, oh, who would write me a letter? Do you usually get letters when you're on vacation in another land? I mean, do people, I mean, I know that we didn't have cell phones back then. We could just text each other nowadays. But like if your friend went to Hawaii for, I don't know, a week, were you going to write something like before they left for Hawaii and send it like two days before they leave for Hawaii so they can get it when they're there? It seems logistically very unlikely that you're going to write a letter to someone for them to receive while they're on vacation, given that when you're on vacation, you're usually in that spot for a very short period of time, four days, five days, a week, I don't know. But if she moved to Hawaii to go to school, okay, write her a letter, that makes sense. If she's doing an internship there for three months, okay, write her a letter there. But it doesn't make any sense that someone would write her a letter and she's duped by it anyway, because again, she's a young girl. She just sees, oh, someone wrote me a letter. Wow, this is cool. Who would be writing me a letter in Hawaii? Well, it's just some chicken scratch that the 300-pound giant wrote on an envelope. And that envelope is empty, ladies, so I'm sorry. It's really kind of fun in this episode hearing Tsuru Hiromi deliver her lines in English as Ayukawa speaking English. Uh, Ayukawa is good at a lot of things. We know this. I've discussed this in previous episodes. I've also made a case why um, Ayukawa is not a Mary Sue. She's not good at everything. You know, look, her English is better than my Japanese. I'll grant her that. But uh, we know that Ayukawa is much better at kung fu and surfing and gymnastics than she is at speaking English. When Kasuga grabs the phone out of Ayukawa's hand and he, he begins yelling Japanese at the kidnappers, you know, and these are English speaking kidnappers, as we already know, his face and his body language are like cartoonishly contorted and exaggerated. Kasuga grabs a phone and he starts yelling in his mouth gets really big. His eyes get really wide. He's kind of hunched over. It's a very cartoonish scene. It's not, it's not a photorealistic display of how somebody, somebody's face would look when they're, when they're speaking into a telephone and one of their friends was just kidnapped. They're talking to the kidnapper. I mean, it's very kind of Looney Tunes-esque. That sort of cuts the tension a little bit. It adds this sense of levity that Casca 
can't communicate with these people because they don't speak Japanese and he doesn't speak English, but he's going to yell at them anyway. And then also the way his, his face is animated, it's a little over the top. It does help to kind of balance the actually very real threat of death in this episode. Um, so I think it's very necessary that they introduce little bits of lightheartedness like that to kind of keep us within the realm of Orange Road. Ayukawa and Kasuga follow the instructions of the kidnappers. They receive another note from them, and it's it's sort of it's like a scavenger hunt. You know, they go from place to place, and they're looking for notes so they can follow these clues because they're going to try to get Shikaru back. And at this point, we're caught up with the beginning of the episode. So we've we've gone, we've done the in media res thing, we've caught up to where they're at, and now we understand why Ayukawa and Kasuga had that feeling of anxiety. And it's more than anxiety. I mean, it's it's real dread and real uh, fright for for their friend here uh, because they don't know what's going on with Shikaru. Has she been hurt? Has she been killed? Where is she? What are these guys doing to her? How are they going to get her back? And it's a lot for them to, to handle. Unfortunately, their pursuit of Shikaru, they play right into the hands of the kidnappers and they get captured as well. So now Koska, Yukua, and Shikaru are in the same boat, possibly literally, the story is really getting very serious. I mean, it's kind of a far cry from those um, churlish, violent goons that Ayukawa easily handles in the other episodes of the TV show. And it's really, you can call them goons. They're really kind of silly, kind of um, these overblown sort of teenage gangster characters. And they're, they're caricatures in that sense. And Ayukawa never feels threatened by them. She always handles them easily. And, and here, this is different. I mean, these guys aren't, they're goonish a little bit too, but they're much more serious. It's a much more serious threat. And Ayukawa, Kasuga, Shikaru all find themselves in a much more perilous situation than they typically face. When Ayukawa asks Kasuga how his face is, he laughs it off despite some really major bruising and swelling, like his eye is all swollen and bruised, his mouth is all swollen and bruised. He looks like they really kind of roughed him up. And he actually says to her, I'm used to this kind of thing, but he's not. I mean, he's never been kidnapped before. He's not used to getting pistol whipped and beaten by goons and then tied up and kidnapped. So why does he say I'm used to this kind of thing? I wonder if it's a subtle dig at Ayukawa. Like she's slapped him so many times at this point. Like she's, I, I can't, I've lost count. I haven't kept count of how many times to this point in the series, Ayukawa has smacked Kasuga. But I wondered if it's like, oh yeah, I'm used to this. Don't worry. Like the pistol whipping is nothing compared to you smacking me all the damn time. If you look at it from that sense, it's funny that he would, A, that he would have the presence of mind to make a little joke like that and dig at her. And he does seem a little bit at ease here. I mean, he he doesn't seem quite as worried as Ayukawa about their situation. Of course, he's got the power, which he uses here. He even obliquely references it when speaking to Ayukawa. He talks about casting a spell, and he tells Ayukawa to close her eyes. He's telling her without telling her. You know, when you say you're going to cast a spell, that means something. I mean, maybe he's being allegorical here. He's just, I'm going to do something fancy you know, it sounds like the type of thing I might tell my daughter or something like that to impress her. But even still, he's sort of referencing it. A smart man, smarter man than Kasuga, would have used the power to escape his own bonds, but then untied Ayukawa the old-fashioned way using his hands. You know, and then you could just say, well, I slipped, I slipped out. I, I slipped loose. They didn't tie it right, and I got out. Kasuga uses the power to loosen hers, 
simultaneously as his, which is inexplicable. There's no normal kind of physical explanation for this. So I, I kind of love the explanation that the Casca family is descended from ninjas. And he just throws it out there. He's like, oh, yeah, don't worry about me using my mind powers to uh, untie you. We're descended from ninjas. It's just like an explanation for why he occasionally does something that's really impressive. And Ayuko picks up on it later in the TV series. I mean, she'll say things like, sometimes you do impressive stuff. Like, sometimes you do something, and it just defies all explanation. And this is one of those cases where he's cool because he knows he's going to be able to untie them. He's joking around a little bit. And I always love a character who can kind of keep his cool in a situation like this and still crack some jokes. It's very like Jack Burton, Big Trouble Little China-esque. I really like it. He's kind of unflappable here. I mean, he does get a little flapped when the guys come in with guns and start pointing them around, start talking about shooting them and throwing them in the ocean. And it's good because I think Ayukawa is a little frightened here. And obviously, Shikaru is uh, completely distraught when when they find her. And I thought it was a little crazy, speaking of which, that Shikaru doesn't recognize Kasuga's voice at first. Kasuga doesn't recognize Shikaru's voice at first, despite them being in America together and they're all speaking Japanese to each other in this scene. It's like, what do these guys do? Like the, the Queens Choco guys, do these guys just kidnap Japanese tourists and, and throw them in this basement or something like that? It seems like when you hear someone speaking Japanese and they got kidnapped and thrown in the same basement as you, you'd probably think these are the people that are with me. It's just crazy that they didn't recognize each other's voices for a moment. And it could be the stress, the adrenaline, the just everything going on with being kidnapped and, and their voices could be hoarse. Shikaru could be in a state of dehydration. Kasuga just got his ass whipped. So maybe his ears are ringing. I don't know. But it was a little bit crazy that they they took a minute to re uh, recognize each other. And then we got the kidnappers bust in, and we get a little bit more English from uh, Tsuru Hiromi. We get to hear Ayukawa claim that all three of them are in junior high. She says, we're in junior high. So that also is in keeping with the television timeline of 1987-1988. Unlike OVA 3 and 4, when Kasuga references being in 11th grade, being 17, being in high school. All of the narrative elements here, all of the stylistic elements here, all of the presentation here is telling us this belongs with the television episodes, even including the timeline. These characters are the same age they are during 1987, 1988, because even though this was released in 1989, April of 1989, this is occurring probably most likely in the summer of 1987. It would make the most sense. Now, I really like Kasuga's use of the power in this scene, it's its a helpful element. It helps them get away from the men with guns, the guys who are about to shoot him. Kasuga uses the power on these guys. I don't know what he does, but they're like gripping their hands. But you hear him use the power. You hear that, that sound that it makes when he's focusing. He's using the power, and you see him with his eyes scrunched up, with, which is also typical of his power use. But it's not a huge deus ex machina. I mean, theoretically, he could have teleported all three of them a mile down the road his power is not worn out like in other episodes. He would be able to use the power here to its maximal efficacy because he's not worn out. I mean, he's a little beat up, so I don't know. Maybe getting hit about the head and neck and pistol whipped reduces your power ability a little bit, but at least he hasn't used up his power in the way that they've shown us previously Kasugas are capable of doing. 
instead of using it as a deus ex machina that helps them get away, they still have to use their wits and they have a good bit of luck that are utilized as much in their escape as Casca's power was. It helped them initiate their escape, but they're still having to run through this labyrinth and try to escape these kidnappers on their own. So in hindsight, this plot, the plot of this episode works perfectly well without any ESP element. You could write it out of the plot with a few minor changes. You don't need to worry about ESP. And I think that's probably where the power thing is at its best as a element in the milieu of the episode. And it can be something that helps the storyline keep moving, but it shouldn't be the be all end all of an episode. And I, I don't like when it's a deus ex machina that he can just use the power and then everything's cool at the end of the episode. I like it better when it's it's the type of thing that greases the wheels a little bit, but he still has to use his wits. He still needs to rely on a little bit of luck or maybe he needs to express himself in a, in a more traditional, less ESP kind of way. And I think that's that those are the the best episodes of Orange Road. So I, I think that's something that I like about this episode here. And there are some who feel like this episode is incongruous with the rest of Orange Road due to the level of suspense and those thriller elements that I mentioned. There's an actual threat to the characters here. And there's a point where these guys are saying, we're going to shoot you and we're going to throw you into the ocean to feed the sharks. And I don't disagree that these elements set this episode apart. And it makes this episode a little bit different than the other television episodes, both stylistically and in terms of subject matter. It sort of sticks out a little bit. I still think it's a great episode. I still think it's well worth watching. Um, it doesn't focus on the relationships so much. The last few episodes that we saw are about uh, how Shikaru feels about Ayukawa and Kasuga and their interactions and episodes about Ayukawa and how she gets along with Kasuga and their relationship. This episode doesn't look at the relationship aspect at all, although they go through this traumatic thing together, and that tends to bring people closer when you go through this kind of traumatic, PTSD-inducing episode together. So the focus is much less their relationships. It's more about them surviving. I mean, it's much more like an 80s action movie in that sense. But there are other TV episodes, as I mentioned before, that feature some threats of violence. These are universally other young people who are threatening Ayukawa. So it's other kind of goons, kind of thugs, but they're other teenagers. They're 16, 17-year-olds. They, they might be threatening violence to Ayukawa and sexual assault. These guys are, are, are there's some scumbags as well, but no one's ever pointing a gun in her face and saying, I'm going to shoot you, your friends, and feed you to the, the sharks. And these uh, Queens Choco kidnapper guys are, these are adults. These are guys in their twenties, thirties, forties. I mean, it's definitely a little different than a scuffle between two teenage gangs that aren't out to kill each other. And then the, the thugs and the goons, as I mentioned earlier, they never really pose a real threat to Ayukawa or the rest of the gang. Ayukawa always handles them without much effort and without much difficulty. It's, it's no problem for Ayukawa to take care of these guys. And so the threat never materializes in the way that it does in this episode. The threat really materializes in this episode. And they got lucky. I mean, they really got lucky a little bit in this episode. So the criminals were preparing to kill our main characters in this episode and dump their bodies in the ocean, as I said before. I mean, Ayukawa, Kasuga, Shikaru, they were literally running for their lives at the end of this episode. And there was a lot of luck that got them out of this 
in one piece because they could easily have been smushed by the car at the end of this episode. What I'll add to that is also that the vibe of this episode was distinctly different than other Orange Road television episodes. There's that Alfred Hitchcock element. And I've invited you guys to go watch several Hitchcock films. There's a bunch out there and they're all great. Alfred Hitchcock did not make coming-of-age stories. He didn't make any films that were about teenagers discovering relationships and dating and sex. There was none of that. That was not involved in any of Hitchcock's films. The filmmaking techniques here were used to mount suspense and communicate paranoia. This is very different. This is diametrically opposed to the more vibrant 80s slice of lifestyle of the other Orange Road episodes. So Orange Road exhibits a very, very different style in the entirety of the oeuvre. And that's why stylistically this film sticks out as well, as I mentioned previously. And that's why I think a lot of people watch this. And I don't know that they always are able to put words to this part, but like even the filmmaking elements of this episode are vastly different than the rest. And it's fun to see what an episode of Orange Road would be like if Alfred Hitchcock directed it. So again, this is a fun episode, but it, it does stick out. Now we get an ending voiceover here too that bookends the film. We have these parallelisms that are often seen in Orange Road episodes. And this episode is bookended with another ending voiceover. As I mentioned earlier, Ayukawa provides the opening voiceover. Kasuga here provides the ending. And both of them seem to be reading letters. In film, television, it's customary to hear a letter in the voice of the character who wrote it, even as another character is reading it. So for example, if, if Kasuga were to write a letter to Ayukawa, and we as the audience were watching Ayukawa read the letter, then as the audience, we would hear the content of that letter being read by Kasuga because it's, it's Kasuga's words. So naturally, we would hear his voice read out those words as Ayukawa is reading it too. Therefore, it's as if someone is reading a letter written by Ayukawa at the beginning, which is likely Kasuga because they show his residence. They have those establishing shots of, of his apartment and his room. And Ayukawa states at the time uh, that she's writing from Hawaii and that uh, all of a sudden everything turned orange in a flash, which to me seems like sunset. Like you, you fell asleep on the beach and you open your eyes and suddenly it's sunset. So Ayukawa is sort of painting a picture. She's sort of setting the episode up but she's not really referencing any events to follow. She's not talking about any of the, the, the violence or the kidnapping or any of the suspense that we're about to see, but that everything turning orange in a flash is almost like a, anything could happen, right? Something's going to happen in a flash in the blink of an eye, and there is sort of the sense of, of uh, suspense even with that, and it's vague, but even with that statement. But then at the end, it would seem like someone is reading Kasuga's response to Ayukawa's opening letter. So the ending voiceover in Kasuga's voice sounds a lot like a response to Ayukawa's opening letter. It's likely Ayukawa, is the residence shown. It's not clear exactly whose it is, but it's definitely not Kasuga's residence. The window that they show at the end in the desk is definitely not Kasuga's residence. So it's very, very likely Ayukawa's room that we're seeing at the end. Kasuga, in his letter, reacts a little bit to the events that transpired. So it's obvious that, that this ending voiceover, the letter that, that Kasuga wrote, is a postscript to the, the events of the episode. 
He says that he won't forget the time that he genuinely feared for his life. And he says that he even would go back to Hawaii, but he wishes that it would be just the two of them. Presumably he means him and Ayukawa. I had speculated that uh, a traumatic event such as this one, such as being kidnapped, would help to bring people together and helps people to feel closer to go through some traumatic events like this. And I think that maybe Kasuga's reflection there at the end might be an indication that going through this, living through this together made him feel a little bit closer to Ayukua, might have helped Ayukua feel a little closer to Kasuga as well. Otherwise, it's hard to tell what the opening and ending means, but it does provide a very nice bookend to this episode. I'd like to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. I want to invite you guys to please support this show and Team Almy Studios on Patreon. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash teamalmy. I will send you merch. I send merch to everybody, all tiers. Get something from me. Also, we're doing uh, a bunch of really excellent special features and bonus content. So we're going to be doing watch-alongs. We did one for Shinkor the other weekend. So that was a lot of fun. I watched Shinkor for the very first time live on Patreon as everybody watched. So please feel free to join the Patreon. You'll get access to my exclusive Patreon-only show, Shit Happens When You Party Naked. That's a fun show as well, but it has nothing to do with anime or or Orange Road. Um, Also check out my other show, Creatures of the Night. Creatures of the Night is a uh, conspiracy theory, wacky DMT mushrooms, Bigfoot type of thing. It's not political. Don't worry about that. So you'll have a lot of fun listening to Creatures of the Night. I'll include a link in the show notes. I would very much appreciate you guys checking it out. Tell a friend about this podcast. If you know anybody that loves Orange Road, turn them on to this. Feel free to turn them on to Orange Road. Get more people listening to this shit. I appreciate you guys very much. Let's listen to some music. <laughs>